Good morning, College Park. Our reading this morning will be from Philippians 4, verses 10 through 13. I rejoice in the Lord greatly, but now, at length, you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. It is a good morning. I, I don't know how early you got up, but you guys are the middle service after all, which is a good service. Glad you're here. But when I got up and drove into church, and I don't know what time it was, it was 6.30 or so, and there was a sun or, or a, uh, a rainbow. Did anybody see the rainbow? Just curious. Just me. There was nobody in first service either, so I feel particularly honored to preach on the day when I saw the rainbow nobody else saw, which could cause you to think I'm hallucinating, perhaps, but <laughs> I'm okay with that. You know, what a good day to be here. Did you see the people getting baptized? It doesn't get any better than that. The community of faith in public testimony, and I mentioned in first service, I, I don't know if it was just today, but whatever that angle is, the tech guys figured out how to do. It reminded me of when I was in Nicaragua <clears throat> um, and used to go down there quite a bit, and, and I did a couple of baptisms down there. And you don't watch from the shore. Everybody gets in the water, you know, and you all get in the water, and then you, 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 you observe the baptism as if we engage in it together as a community which is what it is. It's certainly individuals. And I just love it when parents are baptizing. I love, you know, here's the thing I love about College Park. I was in a church with baptism. Everybody was quiet. And we, we like, why, I mean, what a time to rejoice. Here's people talking about the reality, the grace of God in their lives. And boy, would to God we'd have so many of those <clears throat> that we have to lengthen our sermons to let the preachers preach, you know. Um, so anyway, this morning we are back in Philippians. We are almost done with Philippians. And I, I almost, that's almost sad for me to say. It's been a fun journey. Uh, Mark's coming back. I, we, we're all looking forward very much for him to come back. So we have two more weeks. This is the next to the last week in our series in Philippians. And, and one of the things I've noticed about Paul <clears throat> is that Paul is, I think, inarguably, the greatest of all church theologians. And I love theology and I love theologians. And, and one of the things I love about Paul is he's a good theologian in that he knows his theology like really well. So if you want to be a theologian, you study Paul. That's what you do and others. But he's a theologian that understands that theology isn't just an ivory tower, a bunch of books, stuffy, that it translates into real life. You practice what you believe. You live out the reality of your theology. Whether you think you have a theology or not, you do. And so the challenge for the redeemed is, let me understand God better, theology, so that I can live better. And I just love it that Paul, Paul goes at that angle, and you'll see that in, in all of his writings. So this morning's text, to me, is incredibly practical, while also significantly theological. And, and there's like one term that describes the text this morning, and it's the word contentment. <clears throat> Which, which see, I've spent a lot more time in this text than you have, which isn't a bragging thing. It's just I'm up here and I've got to talk about it for a while and you don't. <clears throat> so I've studied it a lot and, and I've asked this question. Am I content or am I just up here talking about contentment? And I'll, I'll tell you this. I talk better than I live. And I hope you're okay with that because that's true of any proclaimer of the word of God. And then I ask you the question, so are you guys content? 
You content in any circumstance? Were you content this morning before you came to church? How about yesterday? What are you thinking about tomorrow? Well, Paul's going to deal with contentment. And so I did, I did some research on contentment. I went online, which is where you do <clears throat> not the best research, but some I found. Actually, somebody connected me with a guy named Joshua Becker, who's a minimalist, and I'm not even sure what that means. And yet, it's interesting. And he had some of these statistics. I'm not sure how true they are, but you, I, they, they seem possible. Like one of his statistics was 50 years ago, the average square foot, square feet, whatever, of an American house was half what it is now. It's twice as big as it was 50 years ago. So I will be honest with you. I remember my house 50 years ago, 25 Cedar Hill Road. Aren't you impressed? It was Glen Burnie, Maryland. And the phone number was State 96694. Some of you are old enough to remember when we did phone numbers starting with two letters, State 9. Anybody remember that? Yeah, some of you remember that you had party lines. If not, you probably remember it from a TV show that mocks it. Uh, so I, I remember those days, and I can guarantee you the house I live in now is probably more than twice as big as that house. And I, I remember there were five of us in the house, and we thought it was fine. It was, we were okay. I don't think I could live in it today. I just couldn't do it. I wouldn't be content. He also said that 10% of Americans rent storage space. So what for? <laughs> what for? You know what for. We've got too much stuff. It doesn't fit in the house. So you put it in a storage bin. 75% live paycheck to paycheck. And I've, I've been there. The average credit card debt is $15,000 at the really encouraging interest rate of 20, 25%. And I ask why. His conclusion was this. Our discontent is evidenced by our excess. And I, I don't think he's a theologian, but me thinks he's probably, probably right. That we've gotten to our contentment level, or in order to be content, our needs have risen, not incrementally with where our needs really are, but it's what our perception is. And you could probably do similar type studies in other arenas. Um, arenas such as, I, I don't, when, when, I, when I think about relationships, I'm not content in my relationship or relationships. Or when I think about my health, I'm not content in my health. Or, or as I'm aging, I'm not content with that. Or our entertainment industry is based on, you're not content, come to the movie theater, we'll make you content. Watch this scary movie. And then you'll go out, oh. Yeah, that's what entertainment is. You know, the world argues and tries to dupe us into thinking that there are ways to be content. And I am so glad we have a Bible, we have theology that tells us how we can be content. And I'm glad you're here this morning. In case some of you maybe aren't content all the time, maybe, because Paul's going to give us, and I've divided it into three sections of this text, three truths to help us achieve contentment. I don't think it's the full story, but hopefully it will encourage you like it did me as I spent time in preparation for this, how to be content. Truth number one is this. It's found in verse 10 and 11 of Philippians 4. And I hope you have your Bibles and can turn to what was read just a couple minutes ago. Contentment must be learned. And here's what I wish. I wish Paul would say, when I was on the road to Damascus, I got zapped with contentment. I would like to say, go home this afternoon and spend a lot of time in prayer that God will make you content. And, and by the way, you, you ought to do that. But you ought to also understand that what Paul says in this text is the contentment is learned. 
It's some, it's a, there's a process to it. And I am one that says processes, I understand them. The quicker, the better. The less, the more. I like it. That's not what Paul says. Now look at how he approaches it in verse 10. <clears throat> Paul says this, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. And I spent some time with that one sentence. It's at the end of the epistle. The purpose of this epistle, one of the purposes for which Paul wrote Philippians, was a thank you letter. You know, I've got in, in my, someplace, one of my drawers or desks, I've got thank you cards. And you know what it says on the front of it? Thank you. And then I'm supposed to write something in it. You know, like thank you for whatever. The, that, in, the, that's a major part of why Paul wrote this letter. And he alludes to it at the beginning. He's going to talk about it more later on. And apparently Epaphroditus, we've met him earlier in Philippians. He's a guy from Philippi. He comes to Paul. He's bearing maybe money, some sort of resource that would help Paul. He gives it to Paul. And so Paul says, but, but watch how he says it. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length, and I'm not sure, but maybe Paul was saying, it's about time. Have you ever said that? I mean, come on, it's about time somebody remembered me because Paul had been in prison in Rome, maybe house arrest, whatever it was. And he's saying, so finally, at length, and then, then look at his next words, you have revived your concern like, so I'm out of sight, out of mind, right? You don't even think about me. Okay, wow. No, well, wait a minute, now you did. Thanks for finally waking up. <clears throat> and then he kind of... I'm not sure if that was exactly... I, I wonder if maybe Paul hadn't struggled a little bit with contentment that he is going to resolve as we read later on in the text. He goes on and says, You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Almost as though Epaphroditus came up and said, Hey, Paul, I know it's, I know it's been a long time. It's been a while. But let me, let me tell you the reasons. And apparently they were probably legitimate reasons. They didn't have opportunity. But now they'd come through. And Paul says, I'm, I'm very, very thankful to you for that. I'm grateful for you or grateful to you for that. As a matter of fact, I rejoice in the Lord. <clears throat> so that, that's nice. And then, then look at verse 11. He says, not that I'm speaking in, in, of being in need. Have you, ever, have you ever had a gift? You know, you gave a gift to someone, <clears throat> and they said, thank you for this gift. I really didn't need it. Matter of fact, I really, it doesn't matter whether you gave it to me or not. Then you're thinking, well, wait a minute. And I don't think that's what Paul's doing here. Paul is a good teacher he took this situation, uh, just a narrative in life. They'd been kind to him and he appreciated it. And then he said, I got a lesson for you. Let me give you a lesson because Paul's always a lesson guy. He reminds me of my dad. Everything has a lesson and Paul's going to help us. And here was his lesson. <clears throat> and the lesson is this. For I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. And I feel like... So, Paul, really? Any circumstance? Now, let me give you a couple, Paul. If I gave you these, you wouldn't be content. Have, have you read the life of Paul? <laughs> Put your life next to Paul, and then you, you wind up shutting your mouth and saying, all right, Paul, you must have learned something about this. And I think the church of Jesus Christ needs to learn something about contempt, and I think I do. There were two things that jumped out at me when I looked at that. Just that verse 11 and particularly that latter part. The first is this, the idea of being content. Being content. So here we are, Sunday morning, whatever day it is, July like 21st maybe. So here's what you all want to do. We're going to talk about contentment, so like exhale. Is it the, What date is it? Doesn't matter, 27th. Yeah, that was... That. Ah. 
So here's what you need to do with a preacher that doesn't even know what day it is. You exhale and say, I'm going to be content even with him up there. (laughs) And in exhaling, when you read the scriptures, you're going to find that contentment should be the norm for the people of God. Like, Like the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 13 says this, that we are to be free from the love of money. And if you can figure out how to be free from the love of money, not, not free from money, free from the love of money, that'll be a start toward being content. And I can tell you this, you could preach a whole sermon on that, couldn't you? Certainly in our culture, you could. <clears throat> or Paul writes in 1 Timothy 6.6, 6, Paul in his short, pithy, punchy statements, godliness with contentment. Godliness with contentment is great gain. And if I could wish one thing for you or pray one thing for you, College Park, and for me, is that we would learn godliness with contentment is great gain. (sighs) Exhale on that one. Or in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul says he's content in weakness and insults. And he goes on and he says, in, in typical Pauline paradoxical, Pauline paradoxical form, he says, when I am weak, then I'm strong. And I say, Come on, Paul, you can't have it both ways. You're either weak or strong, you're either weak or strong, except if you've read Paul, you understand what he's saying. When I understand my own weaknesses, I'm strengthened by the reality of God's strength, right? And so the end of the story is, I will rejoice even in some of the difficult times because Christ is honored and glorified. And so then I look at myself and I say, contentment, I love the concept I'm not always the best at living it out, particularly when, and then you fill in the blank, things don't go exactly the way they should. You know, the word that's used for contentment here in this particular text is not used often in the New Testament. Some of the guys said it was the, some of the guys I read, the only time it's used. It was used in secular Greek, and some of you, I know you remember your history classes like it was yesterday. But for some of us, maybe not so much. But if you remember studying the Greeks, and the Greeks had these guys that were called Stoics and Epicureans. Eh, maybe you don't remember that. <clears throat> anyway, the Epicureans were those, eat, drink, and be merry, life is let's just... And the Stoics, <clears throat> the Stoics, however, were Stoic. And they were, it's like life can bring, you can do whatever you want. It comes at me, and it's not, I'm, I'm not moving. I'm not going to be altered by anything that comes to me in life. It's kind of like... I, I grew up just outside of Washington, D.C., and, and the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, and they got this guy that's guarding it. And he's guarding it in a very stoic way. And I, I actually love those guys. And, or if you go over to, to, to Buckingham Palace over in London, you got these guys with these big black whatever things on. And, and I've, you've seen some of the pictures where people are trying to make them laugh, and they're just stoic. They're just, you're, not, you're not moving me at all. And so is that the point here? Is the point gets such a big, stiff upper lip that no matter what happens, you've got sufficient resources within yourself. You don't need anybody. You don't need anything. That's what the Stoics thought. That's not what the Bible teaches. As a matter of fact, again, I did some research online about contentment, and I bumped into a Puritan of all people online. He didn't know he was going to be online because he was born in 1599. I'm pretty sure... That was before, was it Al Gore that invented whoever it was that did the internet? <clears throat> but there is, there, is, there is a book of his <clears throat> that I found, and it's called this, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. I love that title. Because it sort of suggests that one of the jewels of Christian virtue and faith is contentment, and yet it seems rare. And then here's a quote. 
that, that, that describes, I thought, in one sentence, in his typical Puritan sentence. So I'm, I, I not long ago got on Twitter, and the beauty of it is I hardly ever tweet. But I decided to tweet this out, and the Puritan, Jeremiah Burroughs, he didn't understand Twitter, so he uses more than 144 characters. And if you do that, you can't quote him. So I, I had to use two tweets to get him in. And some of you probably aren't into Twitter. I mean, the Puritans weren't Twitter people. That's just the bottom line. They, were, they tended to be a little bit wordy. But listen to these words. He says, contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which submits to, and I like this next part, and delights in, not just submits, all right, I'll do it, but delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. So the Jeremiah said, or Burroughs said, maybe that's, he's saying contentment is this state of life when you understand that the God of the universe is your father, and he's a wise father, and you delight in the circumstances, and he uses the word disposal, that he brings those situations into your life and does all of that in every condition as your loving Heavenly Father. Therefore, you can be content. (laughs) So I asked myself the question, so why am I not content? Maybe I don't believe he's really that loving Heavenly Father. Maybe he's just not. Or maybe he's not that wise. Or maybe he doesn't have the ability to dispose or to give disposal of things that come to me in my life. Or maybe the fault is me. (laughs) Because I'm too wrapped up in myself. Contentment. Wow, what a great word. Second thing that jumped out to me in this verse is the concept of learning. That contentment isn't something that just zaps you. I wish it did. As I was preparing for this, I wish, I was like, Lord, okay, I'm going to preach. And there have been a couple nights when I've been up a little bit, not totally content, sorry, you know, I I need to work on. And you know what part of that reality is? And I find this comforting and discouraging at the same time, and that is that contentment is a learned virtue for the people of God. Here's the problem with many of us. We're not interested in learning about being content. As a matter of fact, believe it or not, and I think if you're honest with yourself, some of us like not being content. I mean, so if I'm content, what am I going to complain about? If I'm not going to complain, what am I going to talk about? I mean, how can I talk about people if I'm content? How can I? And I think me thinks that part of our challenge is we're content being discontented. And so we're not so interested in learning about contentment. At least I speak that for myself. And I would imagine many of you can relate. So Paul says this. Paul, I mean, Paul. The Apostle Paul, if anybody, you know, like when I hear Paul saying, I've learned to be content, I think, sure, you're Paul, I'm not. I'm just a regular Joe. (laughs) I wish they would change that, you know, to a regular Don or something. (laughs) But alas and alack, I'm stuck with that name. You know what, I'm not Paul. So can I learn in every state? I find myself in that to be content. I think Paul's going to say, absolutely, you can. As a matter of fact, absolutely, you ought to be learning that. And, and so let me give you a couple of suggestions of how to learn it. One could be, like, open the Bible. That sounds like a preacher, right? That actually, to me, sounds like the truth. Hear from God. Look at some of the characters in the Bible that learn contentment. Like, if you're in the Old Testament, there was another guy, <clears throat> great name, Joseph. I mean, one of the all-time great heroes in the Bible, Joseph. Yosef, 
in Hebrew. And Joseph, you remember the story of Joseph, and if you don't, ask your kids in our next generation. Hopefully they can tell you about it. Hopefully they can tell you about God's working in Joseph. And Joseph was one. You remember his brothers wanted to kill him, and they decided to be gracious. Instead of killing him, we'll sell him into slavery. Oh, thank you, thank you. So he goes to Egypt into slavery. He does well in slavery <clears throat> until the boss's wife lies about him. Then he's back in jail again. The end of the story, Joseph says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. I think, wow, Sky learned contentment. And he was at the beginning of Israel's history. You go to the end of Israel's Old Testament history and you find a guy named Daniel. Daniel. That's a good, solid name. And when we think of Daniel, we, we always say Daniel in the lion's den. Like, wow, that's the way. I mean, it could have been Daniel, the man of prayer. Daniel, you're, you know how to eat leeks or whatever it was that he ate when they ate really good stuff. <clears throat> Daniel in the lion's den. What a way to be known. Yeah, Daniel, whose life was exiled from what he knew. The temple was destroyed. The king was no longer there in Israel. They didn't live in the land. He was in pagan Babylon. And he had learned in whatever state he found himself to be content. I think part of the key was... At least three times a day, he's praying to God, to Yahweh. And he said, God, teach me contentment in this incredibly pagan, crazy place where there's lions and I happen to be in one of their dens. Then you come to the New Testament. <clears throat> Let me suggest Paul is a character that you could learn contentment from. Start reading Acts. You think, you think Paul had it made? I think not. Matter of fact, then, then I, 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 again, did, did a little bit of research and I, and I found Fox's Book of Martyrs, John Fox was a British writer. And he wrote about the time of the British Reformation, the English Reformation, which Mark went and did some study on this summer, a couple of weeks ago. And so John Fox wrote a book, and he wrote a book about some of the martyrs in the English Reformation. And he also went back and told some of the tradition of the apostles. And, and some of it is tradition, but the tradition is probably founded on some fact. Here's what he said about Paul. <clears throat> he said this, Nero, you remember Nero? Not a nice guy. Roman emperor, eh, he was, not so much. He sent two of his esquires, whatever esquires are, to bring him word of Paul's death, meaning go kill him. The soldiers came back, led him out of the city to the place of execution where he, Paul, after his prayers made, gave his neck to the sword. Now, that's old English. That means sword cut his head off. Because he was a Roman citizen, so you couldn't crucify him. But the method of execution would be, hold your head up and we're cutting it off. We're going to hack it off. Because history shows, I don't know about Paul, but for some, the first blow didn't work. I mean, Paul lived out what he said in Philippians 1.21. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And as his neck is stretched out and his head is severed, i got to believe Paul would say, I'm content because to die is gain. <clears throat> and I say, keep those swords away from my neck. I'm not up for that stuff. Contentment must be learned. And Paul seemed like he learned it. Well, point number two, <clears throat> and we could spend a lot more time on that, is that circumstances should not affect contentment. And by the way, at the risk of being obvious, each one of my points begins with a C. And I only bring that out because it took me a long time to figure out three C's. <laughs> Just thought I would let you know that. Contentment 
or circumstances, so you've got the first one is contentment, it must be learned, the second one is circumstances, are not the indicator or the dictator of contentment. And Paul had already said that in, in verse 11, right? In whatever situation I am to be content. Now look at verse 12. This is typical Paul too. It's like, all right, Paul, all right, Paul, I heard you the first time. So, so here's what he says. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance. And again, I'm reading that thinking, Paul, you're rubbing it in a little bit. Any and every two words that are intended to engulf the whole of it. So put in whatever circumstance you're in in life. Fill, fill in the blank there. I have learned the secret, which, by the way, the last point is going to be the secret. Don't you like secrets? He's learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And Paul lists four, or excuse me, six states of being, and they're contrastive states. So they're listed in, in like duels or like in two. And it's as if to say, I'm on the very bottom and on the very top. I've been on both of those. And I've learned, regardless, I can be content. And again, I want to say, good for you, Paul. <laughs> Maybe not so much me. I, I, I wrestle with those words, and they're probably all synonyms on some level, the good ones and the bad ones. It's, I've been up and I've been down. But let me suggest at least a possible way of looking at them. The first two words are, I've learned how to be brought low and how to abound. It could be referring to his reputation. Paul was the Hebrew of the Hebrews. I mean, he was the man. When they said, who's the man? They would say, Paul's the man. And then he goes into Philippi, and they throw him in jail. He had learned how to be on the top of the reputation world, how to be on the bottom of the reputation world. And I don't know about you, but I'm one that finds myself a whole lot more content when I think people are happy with me, you know, and people like me. And I'm sure, Paul, on those days, that's pretty good. <clears throat> on the days when people say, Paul, we don't like your message. We're not all that excited about your gospel. Matter of fact, we hate you, Paul. <clears throat> and he had that problem in some of the churches that he was in. Paul said, I've learned to not let public opinion dictate my contentment. <clears throat> then the next group of two is, <clears throat> Paul said, I've learned to face plenty and I've learned to be hungry. And I think maybe that's referring to like the necessities of life. And you know what? I've learned. <laughs> I've learned to face plenty. I've had some really good things in life happen to me that are really like like this past week. I had an anniversary with my wife, and that has been one of the great blessings of life is that God gave me a wife. And if you have a wife, you have a good. It's not really a thing. It's a person. You have a good person. <clears throat> and you know what that means by thing. So we went out. We celebrated at like the nicest restaurant in Indianapolis, St. Elmo's. And then as a good Christian pastor, I say, somebody gave us the money to do it. And because you, you couldn't think that I just would do that. Except, you know what? I would do that because she's worth it. <laughs> and we had this really good. And so I like, man, we came out of there. <sighs> we may never do it again, but we did it once. I've never been really hungry, but I've seen people that have been hungry. And I, I at times maybe I thought I was hungry and I know I really wasn't. The way I apply the hunger part, maybe not just I'm physically hungry, but I've had times in life where I've just, I've just not felt well, where I've been sick. And then I look at our church, and it seems like in the last month or couple of months, we've had people that have struggled in hunger in terms of physical need. I mean, we've had some really, really tough stuff. And Paul said, I've been there. And not only have I been there, I've been on the top and I've been on the bottom in terms of physical reality. 
I'm going to be content in either case. Then the last one is abundance and need. I think maybe that talks about possessions. I've had all that I need. I've just been, I've just been overwhelmed that I'm sure there have been times in Paul's life when that was true. And then I've also had those times when it's just not enough. The paycheck doesn't go far enough. And in all those, I've learned to be content. I say, Paul, I want to learn how to be content like that. Because I do really well in the abundance times and not so well in the other times. And yet I really wonder, do I really do that well in the abundance times? Because what happens to me when I'm, when I'm given is I want more. I'm like, yeah, this house is nice. That house is nicer. This car's okay. That car's better. <laughs> I need that car. I need that health. So I try to think of an illustration. And you guys have unfortunately encouraged me with these things, so... It's your fault. I've said that before, and it is. So here's my illustration, my visual aid for the morning. Does that show up? You know what that is? It's the lifesaver for many of our young parents in the church. It's a pacifier. It's a kid's pacifier. It's a thing... And by the way, I'm no pacifier expert, and I'm not a child psychologist expert, I think... David Michael is with us this morning. He can help you to, to determine whether you ought to do this with your kids or not. I had three kids. They all use these. Five grandkids. They all use these. And you know what the thing that I think about this is it, it's, it, it offers great promise. And it never delivers. <laughs> you suck forever. And I have seen some intense sucking. And they never get anything. Nothing. And I realize that it's probably the, the whatever you call it, the suck gets satisfied or something. I don't know. But I do know this. And since we're talking about school and about learning, that as you grow up, you realize that the day comes when this has got to go. You know, It's got to go because it really isn't the provider of the ultimate of contentment, even though it seems like it at times. So I'm not saying... So, so here's what my daughter, one of my daughters did, and she learned it or heard it actually from my wife who had a friend that did it. And that is she wanted to get her kid off the pacifier, so she got one of these. And it wasn't to cut her kid's tongue, because that really, that's not a good thing. Here's what she did. One night, behind his back, (laughs) she cuts a little part off of this. And so he starts sucking, and he's like, this just doesn't suck quite as well. He He doesn't reason through all that. It's just like, but, you know, there's still something there. And then, I don't know what the timing is. Again, talk to some experts, not me. She cut a little bit more. And then, you know, I'm sure it was like, man, what's going going through his head? What was going through his head when he was sucking it in the first place? That's what I want to know. (laughs) But I'm sure I was there. And finally, it gets to the point where, and it worked in two situations that I can give evidence to that the child learned that maybe this pacifier isn't all it's cracked up to be, and maybe there's more to life than what I think can provide contentment for me. And the illustration for me, I remember even as a grandparent, the first time I heard they were going to do that, I thought, no, don't do that, that's my little grandkid, I don't want him to be sucking and getting nothing, although he was already doing that, but I still... (laughs) But I also didn't want him going to third grade, where he thought contentment comes from... Let's compare our pacifiers and see who has the best one. I wanted him to learn and to grow to understand that the pacifiers of life that we tend to think we can't live without are not the ultimate reality 
of contentment. So you think you're going to suck on the pacifier of your house or suck on the pacifier of your health or suck on the pacifier of your relationships. And by the way, all those things are good. But they're not going to provide ultimate satisfaction. It goes way beyond that, which brings us to point number three. So contentment is learned. Circumstances are not the basics, basis of contentment. And the third C is like the really obvious C that ends all sermons in the scriptures. And that is Christ is the ultimate source of contentment. Now, that sounds like what a preacher ought to say, because that sounds like what the Bible says. And look at Philippians 4.13. And one of these young people, I think, that got dunked. I love dunking. I also love bringing them up after you get done dunking. I love just the sense of, wow, what a testimony of fellowship with Christ. He quoted, as I recall, Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I love that verse. And I would have to say this, that that is one of the most exegetically distorted taken out of context verses in all the Bible. <laughs> so there you go. I remember using it when I didn't study for tests. <laughs> and so did you, the ones of you that are spiritual, because you're the ones laughing. And then when I go through tough times of life, I say, and here's my definition of I can do all things, it's I can overcome, I can lick this thing, and by God's strength, it'll go away because I've defeated it, the circumstance of life. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. By the way, that is an incredible strength verse, and it's intended to be the context. I mean, you know the context, right? I was reading one scholar, scholar, who said you could translate it, I can do, actually in Greek, it's I can do all. That's, that's, that's what it says. I can do all this. That's not a bad translation. I can learn to be content in whatever situation I am. That's the context. That's a context that says somehow I can learn to be content when life is at its apparent worst. Now, that, that's strength. Don't tell me about... Or let me not tell you about how strong I am when I'm eating at St. Elmo's and when life is just really good, or good by my definition. I'll tell you what real strength is. My God can supply all your need according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus, which Nate will do next week. And I can do all this. I can be one who's content in any circumstance. And it's, here's the secret. Through Christ who strengthens me. Through Christ who enables me. In myself, I'm not that stoic that says, I've got it, all I need, it's right here. It's all I need is in Him. As a matter of fact, I did, again, I did a fair amount of research on that verse. I can do all this through Him. And I thought, so what's through Him? What does that mean? So I looked it up. In my little Greek New Testament, and the, it's a little preposition, and the preposition normally would be translated in him. And I read some of my real brainiac guys, and they said, well, you know what, it probably really has this, and it's, it's not that it's not through him, but what does through him mean? Through him means in him. In him means this, that as long as I am in Christ, and I'm in union with him, and I'm in fellowship with him, then the circumstances of life fade and he becomes my focus and the source of my contentment. And I say, oh, 
would to God that my attention and focus would be so on Christ that his strength would make me able to endure, and not just endure, but delight in his working through me and in me in my life. I can do all this in Christ who strengthens me. Wow, that, that ought to be the verse of College Park Church. So we got a bunch of people that have different circumstances in life we have the good days and the bad days and all those kind of days. And the people come by and they say, that's a church of content people. But they're not content in themselves. They can do all this because they're in Christ who strengthens them. I want to close with a, with a testimony. There's uh, some people in our church that I've been, Kathy and I have become pretty good friends with. Tim and Becky Doyle. Some of you know them. Tim and Becky, are you guys in this service? I'm thinking you're not. They, uh, I, I, I asked them, I said, when I think of contentment, I've, I've seen it in you guys. Could you tell me a little bit about it? Because I, I need to learn. I've got, I've got some learning to do. And, and so they wrote their testimony. And they, they gave me permission to share it. And I'm just going to share excerpts of it. And um, I'm going to get somebody that knows what they're doing, post it on collegeparkyourchurch.com on our blog if you want to read a little bit more. And here's a picture of Tim and Becky. Has that already been up there? There's Tim and Becky. Some of you probably know them. If you don't, you ought to get to know them. Tim's sitting in a padded chair that's a wheelchair. And if you've seen Tim, that's pretty obvious. And Becky's a nice-looking lady. They're, they're, aren't they a nice, they're a nice couple. And they are. We've enjoyed getting to know them. So I asked this question. I asked two questions of them, or actually three. One, I said, all right, Tim. And I knew a little bit about it. I said, so what's up with the wheelchair? And, you know, you've got to be careful who you ask that question to. And Tim and I had a relationship, so it was okay to do that. Here's what he said. I'm from a big Catholic family. Nine in the family, seven kids. He grew up in an athletic family. His dad was a very good baseball player, played college ball, and I'm not sure what else. And Tim was playing high school baseball, and he realized that he wasn't progressing like he thought he should, and it was kind of depressing and sad to him. He went to the doctor. On his 16th birthday, he was diagnosed with muscular dystrophy. I remember my 16th birthday. That was the furthest thing. For, that wasn't even in my radar. I don't even know what that meant. On his 30th birthday, he received his first wheelchair. Listen to this. This one blew me away. Not coincidentally, meaning providentially, that is the day I was broken to my knees in weakness and the day I gave my life to Christ. And I'm like... So Christ put him in a wheelchair and used that to bring him to Christ. Is that a good exchange? Paul thought so. Tim thought so. So ten years later, he married Becky, who you saw in the picture, who refused to see my limitations, but instead focused on how a loving God could work through a very broken man. I think, really? Tell me about that, Tim. Or Becky. He's been a CPA for 30 years, a wheelchair for 20. Of his seven siblings, five are in wheelchairs for muscular dystrophy or multiple sclerosis or both. And two of them have lost their lives. And Tim says he's content. And I say, really? So I asked Becky, I said, all right, Becky, because, you know, sometimes 
you can see his situation and your heart goes out and you're not sure what to say, you're not sure what to do, you know. And so, but hey, Becky, how about you? Here's what she said. Early in her dating relationship, she started freaking out a bit. That's good theological terms. <laughs> when considering a future with Tim. And, and she said she knew he was an amazing man. She just wasn't sure that she had what it took if they started a relationship to take it to the point of where, hey, we might get married. And, and so she said this. I pleaded to God for wisdom and I heard him say... I'm not asking to marry him. I'm asking you to date him. I knew I could do that. She said, within a month, I was begging God to let me marry him. So I'm thinking, contentment, how do you map out so you'll be content for the days of your life? I know how I do it. I'm figuring out the most cush, easy way for the next years of my life. Yeah. That wasn't the way they thought. So then I asked the second question. So, all right, guys, I've got a little bit of a feel for where you are. How do you learn to be content? Here's what Becky says. Unlike Paul, I have not learned contentment in all circumstances. And I say, thank you, Lord. (laughs) I can relate to that. She does say this, but I am learning how to be content. When something happens that can rob me of my joy and peace, I have to actively and purposefully refocus my mind on God and what he says to be true. Sounds like a sermon, doesn't it? A sermon lived in the challenge of life, not preached from a pulpit in the front of a group of people. She said recently they found that that he was having breathing problems, and I don't understand this disease, but apparently part of it that what usually gets you in the end is you're not able to breathe. And so he's on oxygen now, and it's just interesting as she describes it. She said, that was actually a blessing. He's sleeping better. His, 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 uh, his ability to cope in life is just better. And then she said this, but I cried. And I, I'm glad to hear that. Crying is not a bad thing. Crying doesn't mean you're discontent. Life can be really tough. And you don't blow it off by, uh, well, yeah, I'm a Christian. No, you learn, you learn, you learn. And here's what she learned. God is still in control. God knows how many days Tim will live and what num- and that number has not changed. Circumstances don't change that. I knew this was coming and it's no surprise. And then she kind of gives praise to God. She quotes Jeremiah 1.9. Have not I commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord, your God, is with you wherever you go. And obviously the context there was Israel going into the promised land. But I'm here to say the church of Jesus Christ ought to be made up of a group of people that say, regardless of the circumstances, the Lord is with us wherever we go because we're in Christ. She goes on and says, God has provided for us in amazing ways. And we know that no matter what comes our way, God will continue to provide for us and take care of us. And I say, Becky, amen. And by the way, this isn't to the glory of Becky and Tim. It's to the glory of the God of Becky and Tim who show them how to be content. And then Tim. So Tim, how are you content? Here's what he says. When you're sick and study the scripture, the word takes on a deeper, more urgent and real meaning. I've not been sick like him. I've had my little stomach aches. And there are times when God's more real in my stomach aches because that's the best I can do at this point. And it's not that he's more real. It's my recognition is more real. 
And, and he said this, he quotes Spurgeon, so it can't be all bad if you quote Spurgeon, said it like this, many scripture texts are written in secret ink, which must be held to the fire of adversity to be made visible. And then he says this, well, I've read the secret ink that you can only read through the trial of adversity, and I've concluded that contentment in any and all situations of life is that deep, settled confidence that God is in control of every area of my life, that there is a sovereign God, and he didn't fall asleep, or he didn't, he wasn't impotent because my God will strengthen me, and it's by his divine omnipotent strength so that I can learn in whatever state I find myself in that to be content. He said, and listen to this, I also learned the greatest opportunity to glorify God is when you're walking through the fires of affliction and trial. You want to, you want to glorify God? <laughs> Methinks we don't do it the best in our big houses. And I'm not saying get rid of your big houses because I've seen big houses that glorify God as people come in and they're, they're brought to Christ. But it's amazing. And I've seen it in our church. And I've seen it with people in our church that have gone through some of the most difficult of times. And I've heard my brother give testimony and I've watched it myself. And Christ is glorified and honored. That's the contentment I want. Well, I wish I had more time and I don't. We'll put it up. He talks about his wheelchair as being a tremendous blessing. And I want to say, really, Tim? Really? He talks about if you have trouble witnessing to somebody, get a wheelchair and a smile... And he says, people can't understand that combination. It doesn't go together. When you see Tim, he's got that. And, and he said there's never been a day, or he said there, in every day his goal is to witness about Christ to at least one person. And I think, here I am. I walk. He's in a wheelchair. His commitment is stronger than mine to bear testimony to the grace of Jesus Christ through his affliction. Tim's not naive. He says, I can easily differentiate the blessing of the wheelchair and the darkness of the disease. He says, but I know God is in control of the disease and I don't have to worry about it. The worse the disease ravages my body, the greater my opportunity to glorify Christ. I'm like, yeah. That's the secret ink of the text. We know God causes all things to work together for good to those that love him. Romans 8. Do we know that? Maybe we've got to learn it. I've got to learn it. I've got, I've got work to do. He goes on. Let me just read his last section. He says, I'm content in my situation because my purpose, like all of yours, is to glorify God always. And I know I've been a more powerful witness for Christ in this wheelchair than I ever would have been without it. And, and I'm, I don't know if I'm glad or not. I want to say I'm glad that God hasn't called us all to wheelchairs. God hasn't called us all to the same afflictions. But God has called us to contentment in Him. And God's going to bring different things in your life and my life. And the redeemed of God are not so naive as to say, hit me again with something hard. But it's going to say, God, when you do that, it's your wise, fatherly, loving desire that I be conformed to your image and that I glorify you and the glorification of Christ is your ultimate goal. You know, contentment is not your ultimate goal in life. Glorifying God is. When you glorify God, you'll be content. So if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ 
as your Savior. I, I'm, I'm, I'll stand up here and there'll be people up here would love to share with you the secret of contentment and the secret is Jesus Christ. And for others, will be people up here that can pray with you. Father in heaven, I thank you for this text. Paul learned, I need to learn, we need to learn in whatever state that we'll be content. And then, Lord, we, the people of God, need to be able to say, like Paul and like the saints of old, that we can do all this in Christ who strengthens us. May that be reality at College Park for the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ, until he returns. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, College Park. Have a great day of contentment in Christ.